RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Many of you will remember those incredible scenes from the 2011 Japan earthquake. I think it was a nine on the Richter scale, something incredible like that, massive tsunamis. And of course, in the firing line, the Fukushima nuclear power station operated by the Japanese company TEPCO. And of course, uh, tsunamis plowing into nuclear power stations, bit of a worry. And you might have heard also in the news recently that there was a plan to start releasing a radioactive water uh, that has been built up from dealing with that disaster uh, over all that time back into the ocean. Dr. Robert H. Richmond is director of the Kualo Marine Laboratory at the University of Hawaii in Manoa. He is a Pew Fellow in Marine Conservation, and his research covers marine conservation biology. With a focus on coral reefs, he will have a view on what TEPCO are doing at Fukushima. So, Dr. Richmond, welcome to Reality Check Radio. Thanks for coming on all the way from Hawaii. <laughs> thanks very much for the invitation. Nice to have you. Yeah, well, thanks very much. And, uh, yeah, it's a very important issue. Um, my involvement started with a group called the Pacific Island Forum, uh, 18 Pacific nations, including New Zealand, yep, um, we, we where the leaders that. got together and wanted to put together an independent scientific panel and I really credit them for wanting to do the due diligence to say, you know, we're listening to this plan of Japan wanting to release uh, treated water from the nuclear power plant that was destroyed during the tsunami. And they wanted to determine whether or not this was something advisable or not. So it was actually destroyed, that power station, was it? There's no coming back from what happened, obviously. I mean, the damage was severe. So there were five um, cores that were there, five uh, independent power parts of it. Three of them are in total meltdown. And so uh, it's, I mean, the area is devastated. I visited Fukushima back in February of this year as part of a mission of the Pacific Island Forum leadership. Uh, three of the scientists, myself included, were invited to go with them, uh, again, to provide them with advisory um, services to be able to help them understand, which can be fairly daunting science behind the issue. And then uh, I had a chance to actually visit uh, Fukushima, go see the site of the um, damaged plant and be able to look at what they're calling their advanced liquid processing system. And so um, in our role, there are five of us all together, scientists. I'm a marine biologist by training, but I've got experience with radiation from past. I was actually did my doctoral dissertation work on Enoetak Atoll in the Marshall Islands right. so yeah. as one of the sites for the nuclear testing for the United States during the 50s and 60s. And I actually did some of my early training in the Department of Radiation Biology and Biophysics at the University of Rochester, where I studied the uptake of radionuclides by marine organisms. So um, when they asked me if I would be willing to help them out on it, I was happy to do so. We'll get to that in just a moment, but you've just piqued my interest even more. The Marshall <laughs> Islands and those, some of them were huge tests, right, um, back in the day. So all these years later, what what is the effect? I always wondered what, what you know, those tests would have done to those areas and how long uh, they were affected for. So can you tell us much about that? Oh, sure. Well, you know, I study coral reefs as my main area of focus. And, uh, um, you know, there's a range of uh, what we call anthropogenic human-induced disturbances you can do for a coral reef. And, you know, you have corals, you have coastal communities in New Zealand. People see what we call brown water events, where you get a lot of rainfall and runoff and the water turns brown from the sediment. Um, we see issues like that, sediment burial, uh, pollution, runoff, 
ship groundings, oil spills, things of that nature. Uh, what I saw at MOE Talk was called vaporization of coral reefs. They yeah. were literally vaporized off the face of the earth. Uh, some of the areas where I did studies were the bomb craters, um, a little bit over a mile in diameter and about 150 feet, so over um, 30 to 50 meters depth, and basically a big hole in the earth where there was a coral reef and now there's a big empty gap. So on the range of human-induced disturbance, vaporization via nuclear detonation is right up there. It's sort of hard to conceive of the the scale of that, unless like you, you've seen it, but certainly some of the footage from that time showing that, you know, like, I don't know, there's millions of tonnes of water being sort of just pushed straight into the air and all those uh, warships being sort of smothered and everything. It's just it's kind of mind-blowing. But uh, let's get back to Fukushima. So who in their right mind would have put a nuclear power plant in the firing line of tsunamis? I think the answer to that question is no one. And this was part of the problem, that when we were invited and asked to engage with the Pacific Island Forum, you know, the five of us are scientists, so we're trained to ask questions, to do an in-depth dive. And so the first thing that I wanted to understand is why were we even in this situation? Why are we even having this discussion? Um, the people at TEPCO, the Tokyo Electric Power Company, was warned four years prior to this incident by the At International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA. People may be seeing that acronym in the news a lot. Um, they were warned four years ahead of time and by their own scientists that they could expect a 15-meter tsunami in that particular location. The geologists looked at it, the oceanographers, they looked at the activity um, of the tectonic plates there, they looked at the topography of the ocean, and they were warned in advance saying that, you know, you could easily get a 15-meter tsunami, that's exactly what happened. And so all you have to do is Google was Fukushima preventable. There are two studies that'll pop right up. One is done by a group called the Carnegie Institute, which is a think tank. They're very non-political. And another one is a very well-developed scientific evaluation published in 2015. Both came to the conclusion that this never should have happened. If TEPCO would have listened to their own scientists and heeded the warnings of the International Atomic Energy Agency saying that your facility is not up to the safety standards that you would expect, that's why we're in this situation. So to me, that was a red flag from the start. We shouldn't be there. We are. Um, we can't go back in time. But this never should have happened. It was negligence. It was irresponsibility. Yeah, and it's not as if uh, Japan, um, you know, is unfamiliar regarding tsunamis. It's not like a once in a in a blue moon event. They have parts of the country with massive walls erected, don't they, to stop tsunamis coming? And it's 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 something they've been living with for ever since they've been there. So why do you think, was there some sort of arrogance or kind of disregard for, or, or just follow the money? Uh, because it, 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 what a huge risk to take. Yeah, and I think you hit the nail on the head. If you look at those two studies, and again, I give them credit because the people who did the evaluation did a really deep dive. They looked at the records, they looked at the history, they looked at the documentation, and those were some of their observations. They felt it was a combination of arrogance. Um, it wasn't ignorance because they knew better, and it wasn't a matter of them not being warned by some top-notch scientists. Japan has phenomenally talented yeah. scientists, very knowledgeable. And as you say, 
they know that they're in an earthquake zone. There are plenty of historical events that have occurred on both the earthquakes and the tsunamis that resulted from it. So this didn't come as a surprise to everybody except the fact that they were negligent, that they did not build the seawall to the standards. And, you know, I do a lot of what's called ecological risk assessment, where you look at the various scenarios. What if this were to occur? And they took a gamble. They cut corners on building the wall and putting in things. And the problem was that every quote unquote backup and safety would fail under those circumstances. It was predicted. And that's exactly what happened. Anything that would have taken out the main power plants would take out the backup generators, the cooling pumps, the communication system. And that's exactly, there was no redundancy. The um, safety uh, practices were uh, inadequate and the information that they used uh, that they ignored was at their own peril. And that's why we're in the situation we're in. Hence our concern is if they violated everything that they were told prior to the disaster. And now they're making promises to say, well, we're going to get it right this time. You know, and <laughs> I know if they say in New Zealand, we say it in the U.S. all the time, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Why should there be credibility for this group? We've got a short version of that. It's, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's exactly what we need. Yeah. Okay, so we'll get to... Um, what they're planning to do and and how and your concerns about that uh, shortly. But first of all, let's just understand the disaster that happened. So there was this huge earthquake. Um, you mentioned 15 meter was the size of the um, or, or that they were told that they could expect something of that size in, I guess, a, you know, a reasonable time span of it being there. That's what happened. So really, the water just came, just surged and came over a wall and just flooded out the entire power plant. Is that what happened? Yeah. So a huge wave came. You can actually see videos of that online. And it really is disturbing and tragic. But this huge wall of water came in. Uh, the area was inundated, literally. Um, the backup, well, the initial power plant was knocked out, went offline because of the water. But their backup generators that would have you know, allowed the pumps to go forward also were knocked out. Their ability to even detect what was going on was knocked out. The communication system was knocked out. So they were basically blind for a while. They couldn't tell what was going on. And all of these were preventable. When uh, we went to visit the site, we drove through the village of Fukushima, and it was really dystopian. And you could see the stores there with everything in place still. People had to run an abandoned area. And it was truly a tragedy. Lives were lost and uh, tremendous damage. Um, and you could just see stores where everything from the shelves was on the floor when we drove through in last February. It was still uh, an wow. entire... as it was in 2011. Jeez. Exactly. Okay, sort of like a Chernobyl thing, obviously different, but that was like that too. They just, just walked away, didn't they? Everything yeah. was left People with. had to evacuate. And so, you know, they did again what they could at that point. Emergency um, procedures went into place. They evacuated the area. Obviously, the, the deaths were tied to the actual inundation from the tsunami itself. Yep, yep. And so um, everyone had to abandon fairly quickly and get out of there. Since then, they've been in to do things like try to collect the radioactive soil to be able to contain uh, when they were safe, they were able to get back in and start to do the decommissioning. And then that's where we are today is uh, having to deal with over a thousand tanks uh, full of cooling water um, that went around the three um uh, cores that were in meltdown, and there's groundwater that got in as well, so that there is about uh, over 
1.3 million tons of radioactively contaminated water that they're treating. And that's the issue at hand, is they're saying that they've run out of room to be able to handle the water in the thousand tanks. We've been there. All you have to do is do a Google satellite view of the area. And you can see that there is plenty of space outside of the fence um, so that we don't buy the argument that uh, they can't keep storing the water. At some point, they need to do something with it. And one of our recommendations, and we have a paper that we posted online that shows that if they were to use the stored water to make concrete to be used on site, when I was there, it was very evident they need to pour a lot of concrete like getting the seawall up to the size it should have been in the first place. They have an underground ice barrier to try to protect groundwater from getting into the damaged reactors. Um, so that should be replaced with concrete. Uh, there's bags and bags of radioactively contaminated soil around the site that should be stabilized with concrete or in concrete bunkers. And so we did a calculation that indicated that if they were to use the water to make concrete to be used on site, um, they would basically use it up in around five years rather than have to do what's predicted to be a 30-year plus release. Why wouldn't they do that then? We've asked that question numerous times. One claim was that they evaluated it and they found that it wasn't viable. But the plan that they, quote unquote, reviewed for the use of concrete is not what we recommended at all. Anyone who makes concrete knows it takes a lot of water to mix in there. And one of the radionuclides of concern is something called tritium. It's actually tritiated water. Um, it has a half-life of 12.3 years. So if you were to bind it up in concrete, um, A, it takes away what we're calling transboundary issues. Once they release the treated water into the ocean, it's not going to stick around Japan. It's not going to stay in their EEZ or EEZ, as you say in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, it's going to go across the Pacific. It'll be distributed. It'll get into the sediment. It'll get into the fish. It'll get into the animals. So it's transboundary, uh, but it's also transgenerational. If you're talking 30 years, that's my generation, my daughter's generation, and any grandchildren that would come along during that period of time. So the idea of the concrete is that area is not going to be usable for a lot of things for a long time. If you were to use that uh, for the case of tritium with a half-life of 12.3 years, in 50 years, that's basically four half-lives, four times 12.3, you're down to 6.25% of the original ionizing radiation. So after 12.3 years, 50%. After another 12.3 years, you're down to 25%. After another 12.3 years, you're down to 12%. And so you do the math. Um, yeah. Also, it is no longer biologically available. And once tritium is what's called a low-level beta emitter, so that means it's not very high energy, um, it makes beta particles and they won't penetrate concrete, only five one hundredths of a micron. So in concrete, it's not going to be biologically available, it's not going to be transported, it's not going to be transboundary. And for the tritium portion, um, it's no longer an issue because it'll basically lose most of the ionizing radiation. Tritium is not the only radionuclide, and so I don't want to oversell um, the tritium issue alone, but carbon-14 is another radionuclide that's formed uh, in that area, and that has a half-life of 5,730 years. Okay, that's an order of magnitude. Yeah. To, to make yeah. a, a big deal. Forget the concrete but, yeah. there. <laughs> here you go. But there's strontium-90, which is a big concern, uh, cesium-137, ruthenium-106 that I've studied, cobalt-60, a rogues gallery. 62 radionuclides in total, of which they've only really looked at about half of them. And a number of those that we're really concerned about um, have not really, we're not convinced looking at what they're calling their advanced liquid processing system or ALPS is as efficient or effective to convince us 
that the treatment is going to do everything that really needs to be done. And that's why we said, you know, we understand it's a bad situation. Um, that's why we recommend the concrete as an option that we think is much better. And it takes away a lot of the concerns as well. And the other thing that, you know, just overlying point, it was truly a tragedy. Our hearts go out to the people of Japan, the lives that were lost, the damage that was done. Um, but challenges are also opportunities. And this is an opportunity for Japan and the International Atomic Energy Agency to change the way in which nuclear disasters are handled in the future. Like it or not, the experiment is set up. Can we do better? And the answer is, of course we can. Using the ocean as a dumping ground for things that we don't want on land has already proven to be non-viable. And I say that not just as a scientist, but as a parent. You know, what is the legacy we're going to leave for the future? I've had the opportunity to come down to New Zealand on a couple of occasions to work with some of the Maori iwi there on the Kermadec Islands, this potential marine protected area. Um, there was a recent United Nations uh, um, high seas treaty that looks at these kind of inter-trans-Pacific issues, transoceanic issues. And everyone realizes that the oceans are already in trouble, mercury and fish, pesticides, plastics, heavy metals. You go down the rose galleries of list. We're not painting on a blank canvas here. We're looking at an ocean that's already affected by climate change, pollution, overfishing. Why do we continue to say, well, we'll just make it worse and dump more things in the ocean? It makes no sense. Is there any way that anyone could argue, though, in with the right sort of distribution in the ocean, that a, a level of, of, of dilution can be achieved where those things that you've just been talking about kind of are, are so dissipated that they're actually sort of not not the problem that they otherwise would be if it was more of an, in a concentrated area. Uh, are they? Uh, do they have a uh, a way of dealing with it, but the wrong method? I, I'm not asking you to. I'm not trying to justify what they're trying to do, but I'm trying to sort of understand, you know, their thinking here. I mean, they're just pumping this out in the neighbourhood is what they're proposing, right? Yeah. So anyway, that's an excellent question to ask, and it's the obvious question to ask. And you know, we have a phrase for that. That you know, the philosophy used to be the solution to pollution is dilution. Um, and the answer to that is <laughs> That's not. cute. I haven't heard that one. <laughs> yeah, we have all these things that we say to yeah, each other. Yeah, good one. Yeah. Try to keep a little humor in our lives. But um, the problem is that dilution is a chemical process. If the ocean were a sterile aquarium, then yes, absolutely. And there are, that's the main argument, is that they're going to dilute the radionuclides to a concentration that is below quote unquote, acceptable standards. So that's the term that's being used, acceptable standards. You know, I do ecotoxicology for living. So that's studying how toxicants and pollutants affect living systems, people, organisms, the oceans, and the people who depend on the oceans. And so the concept is that if the ocean, if you just look at the volume of the ocean and the volume of the radionuclides, then what you're saying, the, the math is very straightforward. It'll be diluted. The problem is the biology. This is where biology and chemistry collide, so to speak. Biology undercuts the dilution factor, meaning organisms can take up these radionuclides. They can then pass them up through the food web, trophically, from small algae and small uh, creatures living in the sediment. When organisms feed on it, it works its way up the food web. They can be bioaccumulated, and then they can be what we call trophically transferred from one organism to another, and in this case, people. Eating seafood that is contaminated is the concern. And we already know in 2011, after the Fukushima disaster occurred, 
tuna that were caught off of the San Diego coast in California, other side of the Pacific, had cesium-137 that was fingerprinted back to Fukushima. And I want to be very careful, you know, not to overstep and say um, it was at very low levels. So people need to know it's not the end of the world and, you know, people are not going to die. But it showed up. It showed up. And so, you know, we know the same thing with mercury. If anybody looks at uh, online, how much tuna is it safe to eat? I find it disturbing that a lactating mother, a woman who's breastfeeding their children, has been told that there should be a limit on the amount of tuna that they eat in the course of a month because of mercury. Same thing with children. Uh, It's no surprise to anybody. Most people are aware of it. Look it up on the internet. Um, Are there concerns? Yeah. And everyone said, well, mercury is going to be diluted in the ocean, but it gets picked up by organisms. And that's what happens with radionuclides. When I spent my two years on NOETOC, we used to study how radionuclides get into organisms. Uh, They get into the fish. They get into the uh, clams. Um, We had an experimental garden there in one of the areas where you talked about those big mushroom clouds. One of the islands in the north part of NOETOC Atoll had a lot of radioactive fallout. And so an experimental garden was built there with uh, um, coconuts, pandanus, breadfruit. And part of my job as a graduate student was to go up there and collect samples that were then sent to laboratories for analysis to look at the uptake and accumulation of radionuclides in the uh, vegetation. And the answer is, yeah, the Marshallese were told, don't drink any of the coconuts because I, one of the guys that I worked with, we always said, don't, eat, don't drink the coconuts when you're up there. Um, we can pick it up when we did their quote unquote whole body counting. So this is the concern. You're absolutely correct. There is dilution. And, you know, I've, I've had this discussion with a number of physicists who say, but when you look at the vast volume of the Pacific Ocean and you look at the concentration, it'll be diluted below a certain level. But the biology is doing the exact opposite. The biology is doing the other part of what you said. It's concentrating it. These radionuclides can get bound in sediment. They can get picked up by algae. The algae are fed on by larval fish and uh, filter feeders, clams and oysters. It can be accumulated there, and then it can be passed on to people. It can get into fish. Tuna can live to be over 15 years old. Hmm. If the release is going to go on for 30 years, these are some of the key questions we were asking, saying, all right, show us that everything will be okay. They set up an experiment to, quote, unquote, demonstrate um, the uptake of tritium, the tritiated water, um, that's people have been talking about by bottom fish. And it was a ridiculously poorly designed experiment. They took a bunch of bottom fish, threw them in a fiberglass tank with tritiated water, fed them artificial pellets, and then said, well, they went into equilibrium with the tritium in the water. And when we took them out and put them in clean water, then they depurated, then they lost it. You could do the same thing with a kitchen sponge. That's not the point. Right. We're saying, well, what if you wanted to do it right, and if you really wanted the answer to that question, You would put sediment in the tank, then you would put worms and clams and crabs and shrimp in that sediment. Then you would put in the bottom fish, and then they would eat the things that are being exposed to the radionuclides in the water and in the sediment. Of course, they didn't want to have anything to do with that. We tell them three different occasions. If you guys don't want to or can't design the experiment properly, the five of us on the, the team would be happy to design the experiment for you. We'll set up the sampling design. We'll help you with the analysis for free. They, no, no, we don't want any help. We don't want to do it because they didn't want the answer to the question, which is exactly yeah. what you're saying. Biology concentrate, whereas just yeah. chemistry in a sterile vessel will dilute it 
And we're not dealing with a sternal vessel. We're dealing with a vital ocean full of marine creatures, all of which have the ability to uptake, accumulate, and trophically transfer. Yeah, you'd think it would be in, and I'm, what do I know, but in the Japanese culture to not lose face on something or to be embarrassed that they're doing the wrong thing or not doing things properly. That's my impression of that culture. Am I right? Is that kind of how they are? They like to be seen to be doing the right thing. And it's well, I'm not Japanese, so I'm very careful not to uh, make judgments on other cultures. But okay. if you know, I've heard the same things, and I've you know been around. I've worked in Japan. I've got great Japanese uh, colleagues who I deeply respect, and I enjoy them. I've had uh, Japanese graduate students who I have the deepest respect for, and yeah, credibility and face are really important um, in the discussions that I've had, and that's really a concern here. Is that Japan is in a very unique position? to become a world leader in how these kinds of things. This is not the first nuclear disaster, and it's certainly not going to be the last. Interestingly, uh, there's a category for nuclear disasters from one to seven. There have only been two category sevens. The first one was Chernobyl, and that was about 100 times worse in terms of release than what we're seeing in Fukushima. Yeah. But Chernobyl was terrestrial and atmospheric in release. Fukushima is primarily marine because of its location by the ocean. And now the plan for releasing the treated uh, water into the ocean makes it primarily a, a marine issue. And that's the issue is here we have a terrible thing that happened, totally preventable, but we can't go back in time. We can only go forward. But Japan and the International Atomic Energy Agency, and I do hold them responsible, they could be much more proactive than they are. Um, it's there have been nuclear disasters in the past. There will be nuclear disasters in the future. What can we learn? How can we do things differently? How can we do it better? And as people are pushing with nuclear power as an alternative to combustion of coal and fossil fuels, the credibility of the industry is at risk here. And if they're demonstrating that they still either can't or won't do a better job in handling the byproduct of their process, then how would anybody trust them going forward? So on the issue of face, I'm not going to judge a culture. I'm not going to cast yeah. any aspersions on any group. But mm. I also always look at how could we learn from this and do a better job? And I see this as an opportunity lost if it goes the way it's going right now. And you're right about what you just said, because we've had um, you know um, exchanges and conversations about uh, power systems going forward, you know, as we're trying to decarbonize and things like that. And nuclear power comes up quite a bit. And usually the answer is, or one of the comments that will immediately spring up is Fukushima. <laughs> Remember Fukushima. And there's kind of not much you can say um, after hearing that. Okay. So they're pumping that water now. So that's a fait accompli. It's happening now, right? Yeah. They started about two weeks ago. Again, it's treated water, so they're using what they're calling the advanced liquid processing system. But when we started on this, we asked them what's called the source term. What's in the tanks? You have a 1,000 tanks, uh, 1.3 million tons of radioactively contaminated water. What is exactly in there? Um, so their sampling was really um, lax. Uh, it was deficient. We they have over a thousand tanks, and we asked them, well, how many tanks did you sample? Um, in science, you know, this is what geeks and nerds do for a living. Uh, we have a test called a power analysis or a power test. 
all my students in my laboratory know it. They're sick of it. If I have a high school student doing a science fair project in my laboratory, they learn how to do what's called a power analysis. It's simply a test. If you want to know the answer to a question, how many samples do you need, of what size, how often, to be able to have confidence in the data that you're producing. Very straightforward. So we were in a discussion with the TEPCO scientists, and we simply said, what's exactly in the tanks? And they kind of hemmed and hawed. And then they came back and said, well, we don't really care what's in the tanks. We're more concerned with what comes out of the tanks and goes into the ocean. And so our answer was, but how can you determine the efficiency of your treatment if you don't know what you're starting with and then determine what you're ending with? So, I mean, this is just good safety protocol. So after a lot of hemming and hawing, I finally just said, look, can you show me the power analysis you did of how many samples you took from how many tanks, how often, so we can do the confidence and the quality of the data? And they shrugged and said, we never did it. And honestly, my jaw dropped. I looked over at my two colleagues and said, wait a second, you didn't even do a power analysis. Well, we sampled one 30-liter sample from about 30% of the tanks one time. Okay, did you stir the water? Are there organic materials in the tanks? Was it fresh water? Was it seawater? Well, we, you know, it's a little bit of all. And so if we're asking the question how we ended up here due to sloppy and inappropriate, inefficient, irresponsible activities, and then we're hearing the same thing, well, we didn't do what you're recommending because we didn't think we needed to, that again is a red flag to me to say, how can I go to the Pacific Island leaders and say, yeah, I think they got it under control. When every time I hear these things, you know, when we went to Japan, we had a group, a bunch of questions and we were a little bit frustrated. And we understand there's different cultures or different languages. So we're giving everybody as much slack as we can. But, you know, we were trying to look and understand to say, okay, in order for us to be able to come up with the determination, we need these data. We would ask for ABC they would give us DEF. And so, well, thank you for DEF, but let's go back to what we really asked for. And so this kind of evasiveness was a bit of a red flag for us. And then when we started to push a little bit deeper and finding out that some of the answers we wanted when we finally were able to sit down face-to-face, they did a nice job and said, okay, here are some of the things you asked for. And then they gave it to us. And we said, okay, great. Those things we're okay with, take them away. But what about these here? And some of them were even more concerning when they told us what they did or didn't do. It's like, oh, okay, so this is actually a little bit worse than we had thought. And then there were others to say, well, have you considered doing this or that? The the tank experiment I mentioned, why don't you do it right? Why don't you answer? Why don't you ask the right question and do the experiment to come up with the right answer? Because nobody can make an informed decision without these kinds of data. And those are the things that we find very, very concerning. Yeah, well, there's only usually one reason why people don't go all the way is because they have a concern of what they might find and the downside of that data for them, right? I mean, so you you minimize. But then someone like you and your team who knows all this, it becomes a bit of a charade, doesn't it, in a way? Yeah, and I think that's exactly what we were disturbed about. You know, I've always been taught don't assume bad intent. So I go in with clean eyes. Yeah. I'm not going to attack. I'm not going in to destroy. I'm going in open-minded and just say, show me that the data are conclusive that it's safe or that there's a very good chance that it's safe. For the Pacific Island Forum leaders, they're doing the right thing. They're saying, we don't know the science. They're very, very bright, intelligent, well-trained, educated people. But lawyers, policymakers, economists, this is where their expertise is. And for the fact that they actually said, 
we want five independent scientists to come in and they put together a really good group, nuclear physicist, nuclear chemist, I'm a marine biologist, we have an oceanographer. Um, it turned out to be a really good group of people, not only because our skill sets are very complementary, uh, but also just the personalities. Everybody was in it for the right reasons to say they need answers. We're scientists. We can provide them with what they need. And a big part of it was trying to do effective scientific communication. Um, you know, for a scientist, it's easy to understand. For non-scientists, maybe not. But there's nothing we can't explain to people if we want to. And that was another frustration we had was we saw the briefings that were provided to the Pacific Island leaders, including uh, New Zealand leaders as well. And I teach a graduate seminar on communicating science, and it was rife with using science to obfuscate, to confuse rather than clarify. And it was very clear, too, that when we've had these discussions, you know, these Pacific Island leaders are extremely sharp. And this is what they do for a living. They're negotiating, they're leading, they're dealing with policy issues, and they can read people really well. And I always joke with them, I said, look, the only value I have to you is candor. I have no diplomatic skills, nuance and subtlety are not in my vocabulary. And so I'm just going to be straight up with you. And they're saying, fine, that's exactly what we want. Just tell us the truth. Clearly, that's all we want. And I'm very respectful too. I'm not in a position to tell them what they should or shouldn't do. These are decisions they need to make based on a variety of things, culture, economy, intergenerational responsibility. That's one of the reasons I love working the Pacific Islands, been doing it for 44 years, is the long view. Uh, consistently asked when I was in New Zealand and working with the Iwi and the Maori communities there, I was just so delighted with, well, what about our children and grandchildren? What will this decision mean to generations to come? This is our home. This is our place. This is where our generations to come will be. This is where our past generations were. When you're dealing with people like that, how can you possibly not engage and do everything you can to ensure that they have the information they need to make the decision that's right for them? So I'm very careful to say, you know, if they say, what do you think we should do? Rarely do they do that, but never will I say that you should do this or that. That's not my role and it's inappropriate because I'm not a Pacific Islander. Um, but I am very um, concerned that I give them information that's accurate that's adequate, that's clearly communicated to them. So they have everything they need to make the decisions that are right for them within their cultural context. And all of us on the committee have been committed to that. And what you said was very disturbing to me when I saw, and you know, we said it too, it's hard for a leader to say, I didn't understand what they were saying. So we never put anybody in that position. But a couple of them I've known for years, I've worked with many of these Pacific Island leaders, I have several were my past graduate students and several of their kids are my students. And so we have a personal relationship based on trust and respect. And I just asked, I said, did you have trouble understanding the presentation that was just made? And I said, yeah. And so, well, don't feel alone because I couldn't understand anything they said. And they looked at me and said, oh, but you're a scientist. And I said, that's the point. They were doing that on purpose. If yeah. I can understand it and my four colleagues can understand it, it was very clear they didn't want anybody to understand it, especially you guys. And that's our job is to call them on it. Is there going to be any monitoring? You're going to be curious, aren't you, as to, to what happens here? Is there Have they committed, TEPCO and authorities in Japan, have they committed to monitoring anything, bearing in mind the data presentation so far has kind of been a little loose you know, this is uh, going to happen over a long period of time. The way you've explained, you know, the, the food chain and how all that works and how this nuclear waste can concentrate in, in biological situations. So are you going to be monitoring? Is anyone going to be monitoring? Can anyone be held to account if there's a problem 
with what they're doing now in the future? Yeah, so there is a, a monitoring plan. They did what's called a radiological ecological impact assessment, an REIA. That's supposed to be the Bible, the document by which they deal with things like where they have the data now and what they're going to be monitoring. But there are real weaknesses. The REIA, the Radiological uh, Environmental Impact Assessment, is very deficient, very poorly done, full of data gaps and poorly um, not only organized, but the execution. Their monitoring system, A, is not asking the right questions. B, their sampling techniques that we saw were either poorly constructed or will miss just like their tank experiment. It's designed not to catch the problems. And what happens, and that's the scenario we're running. Okay, so what do you do if you find radionuclides getting into the fish, getting into the ocean, getting spread across the Pacific? Then what do you do? And the answer is nothing. The regulatory authority for TEPCO in Japan is Japan's nuclear regulation agency. So when IAE says we don't approve of it, they don't have the authority. But they say that they don't endorse or recommend it. And they went even further to say we don't justify it nor do we provide alternatives. And so what you're hearing is plausible deniability. It's basically an alibi. So in regards to the monitoring, if something goes wrong, does the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, have any responsibility or liability? Answer is no. We understood from the start that this was already going to happen. The best we could do is give good science, ask the right questions, and provide the information to the regional decision makers with the hope that the science would help move it in the right direction. But in the end, it's going to be political will. And, you know, again, this was totally um, avoidable. The people of the Pacific did nothing to cause it. They have no benefit from it whatsoever, but a lot to lose. And we still think that there is a much better approach going forward. Concrete is one of them. But why in the world doesn't Japan and the International Atomic Energy Agency step up and provide the kind of leadership that's necessary in an ocean that's already compromised and compromising the health of the ecosystems and the people who depend on them, we can and must do better if we're going to leave a legacy that we can feel good about for our children and generations to come. Nice to chat with you, Dr. Robert H. Richmond of Kiwalo Marine Laboratory at the University of Hawaii in Manoa. Really interesting <laughs> chat. Thanks so much. Thanks, Paul. I really appreciate the opportunity. If I can follow up with you or anybody else, let me know. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.